Praise God, there is hope in Jesus Christ. Praise God, He sets us free by His grace. That's why we can be here today. That's why we can sit and stand and sing and pray and now read the Word of God. We're going to be looking today at the third miracle account in Matthew chapter 8. We're going to see Jesus serving Peter's mother-in-law. Hope for mother-in-laws everywhere. We're going to also see Peter's mother-in-law in turn serving Jesus as he heals her and many others. And we're going to see Peter's mother-in-law serving Jesus from a pure heart, simply thankful for what God has done in her life. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 and stand with me to read God's Word. We're going to read verses 14 through 17. Matthew chapter 8. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Lord God, we thank you that Jesus, the suffering servant, took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Thank you, Lord, that he can cast out spirits with a word. Thank you, Lord, that he can heal all who are sick. Thank you, Lord, that at Jesus' touch, we become whole. We are healed. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we ask that as we look at your word today, you would open our eyes once again to see exactly what you want us to see. And as a result, we will praise you and we will serve you in your strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are looking at this third miracle account in Matthew 8. And Jesus serves Peter's mother-in-law. And she in turn serves Jesus. And he heals her, but he also heals many others. There's no count on this one, but there were a lot. Some believe that during Jesus' ministry, he effectively wiped out disease in the region in which he operated. But Peter's mother-in-law served him out of a pure heart as a result of his grace toward her, his mercy towards her. But let's look at the facts. Let's look at the facts in verse 14. First thing we see is that Jesus indeed served Peter's mother-in-law. He, he saw that she was sick. She was lying in bed with a fever. Now, my daughter, Alexandra, has been lying in bed with a fever for three days now. This is not the same kind of fever. Now, she wasn't able to go to the high school winter retreat. But Peter's mother-in-law was in in bed with a fever that would have killed her. Literally, it means that she had been thrown on the bed, indicates she was overcome by a feverish illness. Fever in those days was considered a disease, not a symptom. We have a fever, and, 
And we go and we try to figure out why we have it. In those days, it was a disease. And there were three kinds of fever that were common in Palestine in those days. There was what was called Malta fever. It was accompanied by weakness, anemia, wasting away. It would last for several months and many times end in death. You would die from it. There was also a fever very much like typhoid fever. If you've been overseas, you know you might need to take shots for typhoid. And There was this fever that was very much like that. There was also malaria. If you've been overseas, you know that you need to take malaria pills and a cure for that uh, before you go. Um, where the Jordan River crossed the, the Sea of Galilee, there were tons of mosquitoes. I don't know about you, but I'm a mosquito magnet. If there are mosquitoes anywhere nearby, they find me. It's the rich Italian blood mixed with all that olive oil I, I, I uh, inhale. And I, I'll tell you... Um, you want to be with me on a camping trip because you won't get any mosquito bites. But there, there was uh, mos- mosquitoes in plenty and Capernaum was a place where malaria was very prevalent. Most likely, Peter's mother-in-law was suffering from malaria. Now, Jesus had just come from the synagogue to Peter's house. We know that because of the parallel passages in Mark chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 4, he had come from the synagogue to Peter's house. And what do we know about Peter at that time? He was married. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5 refers to his wife, his believing wife. Now, Peter had, had uh, gone with his brother Andrew from their home in Bethsaida to Capernaum, possibly to to their parents' home, possibly to remain near to Jesus. Um, But it is possible, very possible, that Peter and Andrew took over their parents' home and they lived there with their extended families. Jesus came to Peter's house. Now, there was an excavation in 1968 that has convinced most archaeologists that they have found the actual site of Peter's house in Capernaum. Now, for centuries, there were... Uh, tradition of where it was and churches built on top of it and here is one situation where as they sifted down amongst the ruins of centuries old churches they came to what was originally a house that was built in 63 BC and it was big enough for extended family to be living there and they do believe that this is where where the location was but what had probably happened was that Simon's father-in-law had passed away and he and his wife were taking care of her mother in their home. Now in those days, adult children were expected to, to care for their aging parents. More common then than it is today, but some of you are engaged in doing that right now. And you, are, you have made that commitment and you are following, I want to say something to you if you're doing that, you are following the fifth command, honor your father and your mother, which was spoken to the nation of Israel, not just to children, but to all, not just to little children, but to all children, uh, specifically the first application being to grown children who rise up and honor their aging parents and care for them. And so some of you are doing that, and as you're doing that, you might be thinking, 
this is really taxing. What am I doing? Should I be doing this? And what I will say to you is this. When you're doing that, you are honoring them, but you're also honoring God. You're also serving Him as you serve them. And so that is a good thing you are doing. But Mark tells us in this setting that they were at Peter's home and his mother-in-law was sick in bed with this disease and and it implies that she was living in their home and they were caring for her. And Mark tells us that Peter and Andrew and James and John were also with Jesus. It wasn't all by himself. Remember what I said last week is that Matthew gives less details. Straight into the point, he's making the point of Jesus' power and authority over all of life. So he's not going to give you every detail. The other gospel writers can fill in those, those gaps. But when they got to the house, they told him about her, about Peter's mother-in-law. Now Luke adds even more information. Her fever was very high, he says, and that people made requests to Jesus on her behalf. Similar to how the last week we saw the centurion making requests to Jesus on behalf of his servant. So people made requests to Jesus on her behalf, and then Jesus goes into the room And Matthew says he touches her on the hand. And he healed her. Instantaneously, immediate, full healing from from this sickness unto death. We see that in verse 15. He touched her hand. The fever left her. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus rebuked the fever. The fever was sent away by Jesus. The fever left at Jesus' word, and she was healed. Now, in those days, Jewish law forbade a person from touching someone with a fever. Um, But here's an interesting thing. You think back to Jesus healing the leper. Just as Jesus wasn't defiled by healing the leper, the leper was was cleansed by Jesus touching him. Now he is not defiled by touching someone with fever. His power and authority, what this is teaching us about his power and authority, is that his power and authority transcends things like illness and and legalistic, culturally imposed norms. See, her healing was immediate and effective. and, And by the way... She wasn't the only one healed that day. Now, Jesus here is doing this private miracles of sorts. Uh, You know, homes in those days had more people around, and usually there were one or two rooms. And the, the door, the people that would come to the door, it would usually be out onto a street. Maybe there was a courtyard. But it was a, a, a semi-private setting. It wasn't out in the open, but people could see. People could look. But her, his uh, mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, was not the only one healed that day. Look at verse 16. That evening, people waited till evening time. Why would they do that? Well, because the Sabbath was over at sundown on Saturday. And they would wait until the Sabbath was over before coming to Jesus with their sick. And they came to Jesus, and it says that they brought to him many, there were a lot of people, who were who were oppressed by demons. There were people that were, that were being uh, 
indwelt and harassed and, and, uh, and controlled by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word. And he healed all who were sick. Here's a situation where any who came at that point were healed. Didn't say anything about any faith having to be exercised or anything. They were just, all who came were healed. As many as they brought to him were healed. He cast out the demons with a word. Word of authority, a word of power. Craig Keener mentions that in those days, uh, exorcists would often use magical incantations and all this gobbledygook, and they were seeking to manipulate higher spirits into helping them drive out lower ones. That was what they were thinking they were doing. In contrast, Jesus drives out the spirits with a word. With a word. See, and Jesus, and we see in the other Gospels, in the parallel accounts, Jesus would not allow the demons to speak. They knew who he was. They would not, he would not allow them to speak or reveal his identity as the Messiah. He didn't need their testimony. And the time was not right to be revealed in this way. But he healed everyone who came for healing. Everyone who was brought to be healed. And he, what, why was he doing this? We've got to remember why he was doing it. He was giving evidence of his deity that he is God. He was giving evidence of his messiahship, that he was the promised deliverer that had been hoped for and waited for for so long. He was showing his power and authority over all of life, over everything. What you see here is that Jesus is making some of the benefits that he would provide available in advance of the cross. This was before the cross where he would secure healing where he would secure victory over death Jesus makes some of the benefits he would provide available here in advance of the cross as we know there is healing in the atonement when Christ took our place on the cross there is a promise of a resurrection body someday that these bodies that ache so much except for the kids I know yours don't you're feeling good right now but the rest of us That's another story, right? And some of you, your body is being wasted away from cancer or other long-term sickness. You feel the effects of the curse. Not by anything you did, but by virtue of being a human being infected by sin on earth under the curse of sin and disease and sickness are bound to be part of our experience. But there is this promise one day of a resurrection body which we will inherit when Christ returns and the cross of Christ is the benefit for all, the basis for all the benefits that we will receive. The cross of Christ is the basis. And we got to ask, we always ask this question, don't we? Um, Why are some healed and some not healed? You know, why was Lazarus risen from the dead and someone else wasn't three times in the gospels we we read of jesus raising someone up right but why is it that some are healed and some are not why is it that my my cousin died but yours didn't from the same thing the answer lies with god but we know this while god heals now 
and chooses, by the way, many ways to do it. Instantaneous, all the way to doctors and medicine and the wisdom he has given them in that realm. But he chooses many ways to do it. The greater application of healing is for later. Think about it. Lazarus died again. (laughs) He would live again, but he died twice. Peter's mother-in-law might have died from that fever, the malarial fever, but she died someday. One day she died physically. See, verse 16 here, and where Jesus healed all who were sick, should not be used as justification for healing on demand, where we demand that God does something based upon our understanding of how he is supposed to work. We cannot demand healing now any more than we can demand our resurrection bodies right now. Can we get that right now? No. Those who claim that Christians should never be sick should also claim that they should never physically die because Jesus conquered death on the cross. The message of the cross is salvation from sin. Good news about forgiveness, not health. Health is a benefit that comes, but the message of the cross is salvation from sin, not disease. Christ was made sin, not disease. He died for our sin, not our sickness. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed from the effects of sin. John MacArthur put it this way, disease and death cannot permanently be removed until sin is permanently removed. And Jesus' supreme work, therefore, was to conquer sin. In the atonement he dealt with sin, death, and sickness... And yet all three are still with us. Sin is still with us. Death is still with us. Sickness is still with us. See, when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus bruised the head of Satan. It was promised in Genesis after the fall. Jesus bruised the head of Satan, breaking the power of sin. And whoever trusts in the finished work of Christ is immediate delivered immediately delivered from the power from excuse me from the penalty of sin when we trust in Christ we are immediately delivered from the penalty of sin which is eternal separation from God but we will one day be delivered from the power and the presence of sin and its consequences and we will see victory now which are foretastes of heaven But Jesus, in serving Peter's mother-in-law, brings about some of the promised results of the cross. Second thing we see, uh, as soon as she was healed, Peter's mother-in-law served Jesus. Look with me back at verse 15. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Now, we know from Mark and Luke that she served other people that were present that day as well. 
But Matthew is especially emphasizing her service to Jesus, her ministry to Jesus, that she waited on him. It's the Greek word uh, diakoneo. It means to serve. It means to wait upon. It means to minister, to serve as, as someone who waits upon someone else. And the emphasis in this word is upon the work that is being done to benefit other people. It's the idea of aligning ourselves with God's purposes and as a result uh, with his agenda and as a result people being helped and benefited. It's not just the idea of something was done in a vacuum but there was a good result that happened as a result. Now what happened with with, with Peter's mom-in-law was that she most likely had her life saved by Jesus. That then with gratefulness she served him. Not to pay him back. She could never do that. But out of love she simply served. And that she was able to serve at table which was a common role of women in that day shows that she was genuinely healed. Her healing was immediate. Her healing was genuine because she could actually serve food at table where people were present. She didn't have to be quarantined. So her one desire was to use her newfound health to be of use and service to Jesus and others. Now, as does all the Word of God, this story contains truth for living that that applies to us in our understanding of who Jesus is as well as our relationship to God and our response to Him. And I want to point out just two things, really. First of all, uh, that we see, when we see it in verse 17, that Jesus is the servant who saves. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and as such, He deserves our careful attention. He desires our careful attention as well. Think with me about Matthew chapters 8 and 9 and and what they contain. They contain miracles of healing. They contain miracles of power, miracles of restoration, and they are showing Christ's unquestioned power and authority over all of life. Now, we've looked at three miracles so far, and it, it shows Jesus ministering to those who are marginalized. The first, things many peop- first thing a good Jewish man would do uh, in, in, in the morning was to pray. And there were 18 uh, benedictions they would pray. But amongst them, at, at the top of the list, was this prayer. Lord, thank you that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. In the first two miracles, Jesus showed mercy to an outcast leper as well as a Gentile and his slave. Now he shows mercy to a woman. Shows us that physical health, race, social status, gender, make no difference to Jesus. Neither one is an advantage or a disadvantage where his blessings are concerned. The marginalized, as we see, often receive Christ's blessings because they're humble enough to notice. While the proud and the self-sufficient missed because they're too self-occupied, uh, too caught up in themselves to be aware 
Verse 17 says that what Jesus did in healing was to fulfill Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4, which says, He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. The servant performs at God's call and engages sickness and disease on behalf of the people. God's promised work is being done. This is what it's signifying, that God's promised work is being done, being accomplished by Jesus. The effects of sin are being reversed. But there is something else we need to notice here, and it's generally understood that when a New Testament writer quotes a brief Old Testament passage, it often refers uh, to the entire context of the passage, of the quote. So, verse 17 here must take into account the thrust of the entire, uh, it's a song, basically. It's a servant song. And so, what that means is we must look for a deeper connection here between verse 17 and Isaiah 53, 4. Beyond just physical healing um, of Peter's mother-in-law or of all these people who had been brought to Jesus uh, because of who he was and what he was doing. So, think about the context of Isaiah 53. There's only 12 verses in Isaiah 53. You could read it, and, and in fact, uh, at Easter time, I plan to, uh, to, uh, to look at Isaiah 53 in depth. But if you think about the context, the, the, it emphasizes healing from the effects of sin. Now, God's word, and by the way, Jewish tradition... Uh, viewed all, views all sickness as somehow related to sin directly or indirectly. That illness is a natural context, uh, consequence of this fallen world. And it, not every illness should be linked to personal sin. That would be wrong. But every illness is linked to sin in general as is common to man. One of the effects of sin is, is uh, sickness. But at first glance, it it looks like that Matthew is referring um, to bodily healing. But if you think about it, what is Isaiah 53 important to New Testament writers with regard to? With the significance that is most often brought out is that of Jesus' death. His death. Now, you think of the verbs that are used here. Uh, Some versions say took up and carried. Um, Others say took up and bore. The idea is these verbs are showing the fact that he took up and that he bore or carried. It shows the idea of substitution. The idea referring to the servant taking the diseases of others upon himself through his suffering and death for their sin. That the way he bears the sickness of others is through his suffering and death on their behalf. You see, Jesus healed all who were sick, cast out the demons with the word, but as, as John Piper wrote, Satan's work is not the chief peril dealt with in the death of Christ. God's wrath is. God is opposed to us in his righteous wrath, and he is for us in his love. Therefore, in his great love, he sends his son to endure his own wrath against us. In this way, his righteousness is upheld 
and his love is expressed. His wrath and curse and condemnation of our sin are endured for us by another, our substitute, Jesus Christ. So in using the words took up and carried now, Matthew is also making the connection between Jesus' healing ministry and the cross. Remember when this was written, the cross had already happened. Matthew 1, by the way, states within the context of Christ's kingdom that Jesus came to save his people from their sin. You think about Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, where through one act of righteousness, the many can be made righteous. Uh, Go with me to Romans 4, by the way. This will will kind of uh, explain things a bit further. You know, the idea that uh, one, one sin led to condemnation for all people, the sin in the garden, but by one act of righteousness, Christ's death on the cross... That leads to to justification of life for all who believe. Well, Romans 4, verse 20. Says this, speaking of Abraham, he grew strong in faith. He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. The idea here is that God had promised uh, a son. He believed he was able to be declared righteous based upon faith. Then you go to Romans 5.1. We've been justified by faith. Faith, therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. At the cross, Christ broke down the, the barrier wall. Christ is the great wall breaker, if you think about it. Think about what, what Christ has done already in these, in these miracles that we have seen. He broke down the outer wall, letting, gen, letting a leper in. He broke down the wall of the court of the Gentiles, letting a, a, the centurion in. He now breaks down the wall of the court of women, letting Peter's mother-in-law in. At the cross, though, he spit, split the veil of the temple, the veil of the Holy of Holies, allowing all who believe to be able to enter into God's presence. So it's the, 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 bigger, the bigger issue here is the cross. The bigger issue is the, the substitution that took place. Isaiah 53, he took our sins upon himself. Our standing in Christ hinges on the fact that Christ took our sin upon himself. So in essence, think about Jesus' healing ministry. It is itself a function of his death on the cross in our place by which he laid the foundation for ultimately destroying sick, sickness one day. See, in the kingdom of God one day, there will be no more death, no more sickness, made possible by the shed blood of Christ. The healings he did were not only a foretaste of, of his kingdom, but a fruit of his coming death. As he did these miracles, it was pointing to his death on the cross that would pay for the freedom for these for people to walk in this freedom and ultimately in heaven to be free from sin and death and hell it goes much further beyond a simple or uh, miraculous healing one day in Capernaum 
The miracles highlighted Christ's authority. That, and by the way, he never used his own authority for his own benefit, but only for the benefit of others and the glory of God. When he gave his life as a ransom for many, it was an extension of that same authority directed to the, for the good of others. Jesus is the servant who saves, and he went to the cross for his glory and our good, our ultimate good, our ultimate healing. The last thing I'll point out is that, that believers are Christ's servants. Believers are Christ's servants. See, Peter's mother-in-law was served by Jesus, then got up and served him. Uh, it's, it's, it, the word served there is used in the imperfect tense. It portrays the ongoing nature of her service, that she continued to do so. She became his servant. Uh, William Barclay put it this way, Peter's wife's mother used the gift of her health restored to serve Jesus and to serve others. That is the way in which we should use every gift of God. See, Jesus had probably saved her life and, and by, in gratefulness she served him back, not to pay him back, but out of love. That healing and restoration lead to a grateful response in service. Now, in a similar way, Jesus has saved the life of every person who believes. Every person who believes. And we can never pay him back, nor should we. But oh, what, what loving service he inspires and enables as a result. What, what loving service his gift of salvation generates in us. What love has been poured out on us and overflowing in our hearts then for him. We love because he first loved us. See, serving is a gift that is enabled by God. Serving, the idea of serving, us serving God, is a gift enabled, a gift from God enabled by God to God. If I ever truly and purely serve God, as opposed to serving myself or doing it to be seen by other people, the process is totally dependent upon Him. It's based on the character of God, His greatness, His goodness, His love, His holiness, that He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. We have nothing that first wasn't given to us by God. 1 Peter 4.11 says, Whoever serves, let him do so uh, by the strength which God supplies. Psalm 100 verse 2, one of my, my favorite psalm. It's, it's, it says, Serve the Lord with gladness, grateful for the opportunity, thankful for the privilege. Uh, a question that is often on the mind of many is, well, but how can I serve God? How can I serve God? What I would say is this. Listen really closely, please. This is the time to wake up, okay? Don't go looking for new ways to serve God. (gasps) What? I can't believe you just said that. Don't go looking for new ways to serve God. Not first. Not first. Here's what you should first do. Start right where you are right now. Start right where you are right now in the callings that you are fulfilling right now as Sons and daughters and spouses and employers and employees and, and believers, start right where you are right now and do what you do for Jesus. Lord, this is for you. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do, your, do from your heart as for the Lord and not for men. So you're serving a boss that is very, oh, I don't know, unfair or harsh? Serve as unto the Lord. You're serving, it's the Lord Christ whom you're serving. Not that you know what. I didn't use the word. Fervent, Romans 12, 11. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. 
Serving God in every realm in which you now are. That's why you don't need to go look for new and different ways to serve God. Start right where you are right now. And guess what? As you do that, God will lead you into new and different ways of serving Him as He leads, as He directs, as He guides you. Your life then becomes an offering to God. You don't have to be wondering, what am I supposed to do? And it's always outside of you somewhere else. But right now, in the midst of what you're doing in life, He will strengthen you, He will encourage you, He will motivate you in His service. No matter how mundane you think that service is. Like Brother Lawrence who could mop a floor to the glory of God. It's all because of Jesus. God is always previous in the process. Always first, always preeminent. Of Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. Aren't you glad you don't have to hold life together? Well, some of you think I'm hanging on by a thread because I'm holding it all together. No, you're not. Stop being a martyr. God is holding it all together. That's an immense comfort to know that he is in control, that he is holding all the pieces together, that you don't have to grasp and, 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 and cling and just rest. Just rest. He is holding everything together. He, that's his job. And, and we can only serve God because he first served us in Christ on the cross. For our sin, with his blood, making payment, securing forgiveness, bringing freedom. It's all because of Jesus. Daryl Bach put it this way. Service is what naturally follows God's grace. You experience God's grace, you'll serve him. God's grace motivates us to serve him. Some people serve to be loved. Some people love to be served. And some just love to serve. The first do it for approval and security. The second do it to gain comfort and the feeling of superiority. But the, sir, the third group just simply serves because they've been loved. Now, I jump back and forth between the three groups, by the way. Or I develop a hybrid of my own. Um, but why I do what I do is so important because it reveals my heart. Matthew twenty twenty eight says that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So in order for us to truly love to serve, it needs to be rooted in the grace of God in Christ. As he serves us, we serve him. It must be rooted in the self-sacrificing substitution that Christ entered into on the cross where he loved us so much that he went to the cross. John 13, 1 says that Jesus, knowing that the hour had come that he should depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. Galatians 5 and 13 says that we were called for freedom, but we are not to use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love to serve one another. So God wants us to be willing to reach out to people inside and outside the church. Be willing to voluntarily limit our freedoms for people for the sake of others. First uh, Timothy 4 says that we should be good servants of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and the sound doctrine that we follow. We're supposed to be serving the Lord, but how would you know 
if your service really flows from God's grace? How do you know? You will know to the extent to which you are willing to be inconvenienced, to the extent to which you are willing to be misunderstood, to the extent that you are willing to be hurt for the sake of others, to the extent that you are willing to give up your reputation for kindness, your comfort, your position of strength to be seen of as weak, to the extent that you are willing to make a personal exchange, your life for theirs. Tim Keller put it this way, all life-changing love toward people with serious needs is a substitutional sacrifice. And that's the heart of the true gospel. Substitution. Christ's life for ours because of his love. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that we can serve because of what we'll get out of it, such as a free day at a theme park if we volunteer. We know, Lord, that we can serve for a paycheck if we're employees. We know, Lord, we can serve to gain approval and security and acceptance of a, of a, of a subculture, be it a family, a church, a community. We know, Lord, we can serve for all those reasons, but we also know, Lord, that we're called to more. We're called to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind, think of others as more important than ourselves. And Lord, we know that we're called to serve your purposes. So Lord, we, we ask, Lord, that as you have freed us in Christ, those who are free in Christ, everyone who has been changed by Jesus, Lord, we pray that you would free us as well to serve you. We pray in Jesus' name.